For outdoor clothing, the media highlights microplastics as the major issue. But is there a bigger, more systemic problem? Hello and welcome to the Circular Economy podcast, where we find out how circular approaches are better for people, planet and profit. I'm Catherine Wheatman of Rethink Global, and I'll be chatting with those people making the circular economy happen. Rethinking how we design, make and use everything. We'll talk to entrepreneurs and business owners, social enterprises and leading thinkers. You'll find the show notes, links and transcripts at circulareconomypodcast.com where you can subscribe to updates and our fortnightly edition of Circular Insights. Today we're talking to someone I've known for a few years. Charles Ross is a specialist in performance sportswear design and sustainability, focusing on issues like forever chemicals, plastics in the ocean and bioplastics. Charles describes himself as just a lucky guy, feeling that he keeps on being in the right place and at the right time. Whilst adventuring around the world, he ended up in the United States and joined the staff at Outward Bound. On returning to the UK, working in cold, wet, windy and dark locations didn't appeal so much. So he diverted into the apparel side of the outdoor industry, just as Gore-Tex and Fleece were taking off. Charles has worked alongside some of the better thinkers of the industry, like Sarah Howcroft, the co-founder of Rowan, and the sustainability team at the European Outdoor Group Trade Association. He also teaches on the MA in Performance Sportswear Design. As his passion for more responsible product development grew, he kept returning to the concerns of his students. How selling more products going to save the world? We talk about fibres, including petrochemicals and bioplastics, why microplastics are not the biggest problem, and we cover trends for rental, reuse and repair. We discuss false solutions and why emotional durability is the key to reducing our clothing footprint. Have a listen, and afterwards I'll share what I took away from the conversation. Charles, welcome to the Circular Economy podcast. Thank you, Catherine. And can I say what an honour this is? And I'm going to have imposter syndrome because I use your podcast to listen to people that I really admire. So I do not feel unworthy to be on the same stage as a couple of your previous guests, but I'll do my best to try and keep up the standards. That's very nice of you to say so, Charles. Um, And just reading your bio, you describe them yourself as just a lucky guy, feeling like you keep being at the right place and at the right time. So maybe that's one of these happenstance occasions. Not not that I would put my podcast up with some of the other stuff that you've done. But maybe we could start with a quick overview of your background, because it's uh, quite, you you do have a kind of uh, a nice, uh, meandering story of, of how you how you got to where you are now so tell us a little bit about that please without going into great detail I grew up in a military environment and I was unable to join the military so I went traveling and somehow I ended up as an outward bound instructor within America where it was glorious and I eventually returned to this country on November the 1st when it was dark, wet, windy and cold. And I decided being an outward bound instructor wasn't really what I wanted to do. But I had a passion for the community that I'd been experiencing. And this was at the end of the 80s. So it timed with fleece arriving on the market, with Gore-Tex arriving on the market, and there was energy in this sector. So I went to look at the textile side of the industry and fell on my feet and and I've I've stayed within that area ever since. So Charles now you specialize in performance sportswear could we start with an overview of some of the sustainability challenges and I'm guessing we won't even get near all of them Um, but I know people have concerns about things like waterproofing the dyes and coatings microplastics and lots of other things. Um, The list is endless and they are all challenges and 
it's all where it goes wrong. Um, performance sportswear essentially gives you microscopic improvements in most cases. More often, there's more enthusiasm to the marketing of them than there actually is in the performance difference. But the whole industry is designed to make you consume more. Um, now, some of it's really important. In the situations where clothing is used as life-saving equipment or for the top athletes, it does make the difference. But the majority of the use is what we call outside use rather than outdoor use. And there is the desire, mainly led by the marketing, telling you to consume more. And yeah, sorry without knocking the whole industry, but the, the model is broken because all we're told to do is to consume, 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 which um, I'm not sure fit, sits well in my mind. No, me neither. And I guess nearly every consumer-facing industry I look at is more and more following the fast fashion model of you know planned obsolescence and creating creating trends out of nothing but creating trends where one of the criteria seems to be hardly anybody will have this in their wardrobe um you know from years ago so we're so we're safe to introduce this in the knowledge that people won't just get out the ones they've already got of you know this color or this shape or whatever so coming back to some of those the, the specific sustainability challenges which which do you think which are the companies focusing on most is it microplastics because perhaps um, their customers are worried about that or is it more to do with the chemicals used in waterproofing dyes and coatings what what, what do you see them focusing on um, the big areas at the moment, the media has made out plastic in the ocean, which is the microfilaments or the fiber fragmentation, to be the big problem. But actually, plastic in the ocean is only the third biggest problem within the ocean. We have global temperatures, we have overfishing, and then we have pollution in the ocean. And we know from wash tests, the guys at University of Leeds have actually done the research, and we know that most cellulosic or natural fibers are weaker than the synthetic fibers. So when you do your laundry, there's more, there's more cotton break-off than there is polyester break-off, which makes a bit of a, a, a foolish awareness of the situation. I'm really interested in the chemical situation and just before lockdown, there was actually a popular movie called Dark Waters based on the, uh, the book Expose, which was about DuPont's leaking of chemicals into ground soil within America. And it's the PFCs, the PFOAs. That is a massive problem. And most people interpret it as we will just get a white, a white coated laboratory genius to substitute the chemicals for less bad chemicals. But we've got so used to the technology, the new generation of chemicals can't perform as well as the old chemicals. And then the most current thing coming through at the moment um, is that we're using that many synthetic fertilizers, pesticides and dyes some are now reassessing that actually some natural materials which have been grown in this way or processed in this way actually bear more resemblance to a synthetic fibre than they do to a natural fibre. So what we all learnt in school, that cotton biodegrades if you just leave it, is no longer true. I mean, it's going on for decades. So you've asked me what the biggest problem is. I don't know. There's a whole array of problems. And I would not say that that's at, our biggest problem is actually the cheapness of textiles, mm. just like food. Because they've become cheaper, we now own twice the amount of garments that we did at the millennium, which had doubled from the 1970s. So to me, the biggest problem is the overconsumption 
of textiles on potentially an overpopulated world, but that is extrapolated because we have extended supply lines. I have just been talking about spring summer 2023 um, trends, and we're still in 2021. And the only way to make sure that you don't run out of stock is you overproduce. So, because if you lose the famous shelf space, it's your rival brands that will move into that area. So our biggest problem to me is the cheapness of textiles and the model that we're having um, to push them through, which is a really depressing answer. Sorry, Catherine. No, no, it's, it's, not, um, it's not particularly a surprise. I think it's, it's interesting that you're focusing on, on the same areas that I'm starting to talk about more and more, which is the most important thing we've got to do is reduce our footprint, you know, whatever kind of footprint that is, whether it's about energy or chemicals or land use, whatever it is, we've got to come up with ways of reducing the footprint. And the only way we're going to make a big enough impact is by consuming less. And that means two two things in terms of design. It's either more durable products, which doesn't fit with the, the trends and the fast fashion and, and all the rest of it and the marketing, or it's producing products that can can have can be used by more than one person over the product's lifetime through sharing, renting, exchange systems, reuse or you know, resale, all that kind of stuff. So we get more use out of the same product. And only those two things will slow down the flow of materials and shrink our footprint. I guess I guess what I was asking was, out of those problems, um, where are the manufacturers focusing most? What what are they seeing as the as the number one thing for them to, to do better? I call it emotional durability, which is how long do I love this garment for to keep wearing it? Or as the fashion trade want to refer to it, as emotional obsolescence, how quickly can they make this garment unloved so that you will buy a new a new product instead? Wow, is that is that a real thing? They're not just they're not just focusing on new trends, um, but that I do you think designers are actively focusing on how do we make this emotionally obsolescent as fast as possible? You, you've you've used again another particular word do i think designers are doing it no and i think there's some brilliant cases from especially the outdoor and sports industry about how the designers want to make it last emotionally for as long as possible um but i would not say the same of the trend of big business and if i could just give an example to illustrate this, the top of the mountain brand at the moment is recognized to be Arcteryx, a Canadian company, really decent company. And they even have manufacturing over in Canada. So they've got their social network built up on, on that side of it. But they had a fair amount of staff, ch of staff churn. And they noticed that People were joining the company or wanting to join the company because they loved the, the values of the company. But when they got there, they found the company wasn't actually living up to the other side, to the, to the quiet side of being a really active player within the community. And not so much the lead athletes who were choosing to work there, but the rest of the team wanted them to pay more attention to the footprint of the apparel. So there was this contrast between they wanted to use the best materials, but they also wanted to be responsible. And they had a project which you can look up on Bird's Nest. Uh, you, you can look up on YouTube. They don't actually talk about it publicly. It's called Bird's Nest, which is when they pull all their spare bits of Gore-Tex together from offcuts. And in October each year, the whole of the factory goes to work on a Sunday, unpaid. Um, they, they make all the offcuts of Gore-Tex into rain capes, ponchos. And the following month, they go and distribute them to all the hobos of Vancouver. And since they've done this and found their place in the community, two things have happened. One, 
Arcteryx are the test bed for the new type of Gore-Tex. So if you ever want to be an industrial spy, the easiest way to do it is to become a hobo within Vancouver. But also the company reconnected to their society and their community and their staff churn shot down rapidly because although they weren't publicly talking about it, the employees knew the company was playing a decent role within their uh, society. Yeah, that's really interesting. And there is more evidence that employees want to work for companies that, you know, fit their values. And, and people are thinking much more carefully about who they want to work for and whether they'll be proud of working there. And, um, you know, it's not just about the pay, the benefits, where it is and so on. These things are becoming more and more important. So let's let's move on to good stuff now. Um, what do you think the key players are doing to go more circular? Are you seeing anybody offering rental in the outdoor market or proper take-back and resale schemes? I know there's Patagonia Warnware, but that only really exists in America. There's no, you, can't, you can't buy Warnware if you're not living in America. What, what are you seeing out in the market? I'm actually seeing a massive explosion of this very area over in Scandinavia, especially Sweden. Um, places like Hagloss, Houdini, Ishborn, all offer rental models. Um, Fjallraven have gone for the long-term durability, emphasizing, you know, if you have 30 or 40-year garments, we will help to repair them and keep them going. Autovox, the German company, um, is just doing such good social responsibility with their supply chain. Patagonia are the default answer. When, any, when anyone ever asks someone in a school of fashion, can you example a sustainable clothing company? They say Patagonia. And Patagonia have very good practice, but they excel at the communication of it. But I can also look towards a, a German brand like Valde, and I would actually challenge and say Valde actually have better product, so environmentally lower impact. It's just their communication isn't good. Um, but that's ignoring all the brands within this country. People like Rab, Mountain Equipment, Outkit, Rohan, Burkhouse, all the big ones are doing much improved practice. Rab have just... Um, committed to becoming a climate neutral company within the next couple of years mountain equipment um, are also on the journey they're the people who instituted what has become the responsible down standard so the rds they they were the people who were first in the market with the standard outkit have their continuum project in all their shops they have a repair center which just like worn again you can take any goods into and they will replace uh, zips and buckles. So do Finisterre within all their retail outlets. Burkhouse, Rohan. I mean, you can actually, it makes me proud to go through the list of all the brands. And because they're all staffed by what I call decent people, there's no brand not trying to make progress in this area. And even those brands who are more on the athleisure side, um, brands like the North Face and Christopher Rayburn, they still have wonderful practice going on. So I almost see the outdoor industry as being very much the early adopters of this. And it now integrated it itself into the more high street side. So... I can't think of a brand off the top of my head who what they're doing I'm ashamed of. I would actually like to say the outdoor industry as a whole actually have good practice. And if you look underneath the cover, almost every company will do something good. Mm, that's interesting. And it's good to see lots of them making, making solid progress. And what do you think are the key trends on textiles? Uh, are, are companies being pushed away from using synthetics or are they trying to find ways of using synth synthetics that avoid some of the issues around, um, you know, synthetic dyes and finishing and also the um, uh, 
the microfibers that that don't degrade and as 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 you've mentioned before carry lots of chemicals and i know that that happens for cotton as well but you can't it's there isn't technology so far that i've seen that allows the use of um naturally derived dyes for synthetics what trends are you seeing on 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 the textiles um that's a really good question to ask in december 2021 because we've just finished two big themes on the future sustainability of nylon, as was the theme. Um, polyester we all know about, and everyone's very aware of the recycling of polyester, which is not so much the recycling of polyester, but the downcycling from the drinks industry. So there's a lot of PET out there that people are reusing, whereas the nylon source, the PA, was always somewhat limited but i have seen sources of nylon where not only are we retrieving so many more of the fishing nets of the sea what parley from the ocean made famous and i understand why there are so many ghost nets out there because if you land a net in this country to chuck into the landfill it's going to cost you almost 150 pounds a ton and I know things are tight for fishermen, but now that they're getting more money for landing the nets, they are landing the nets, which is, in, which is improving the situation. For the last decade, they've drastically improved the disposable carpet industry, the, um, uh, the exhibition carpet industry. So we're either having a pure mono material nylon carpet or we can easily remove the underlay so the nylon and, and the rubberized texture become separate. But the latest development, which, um, yes, I'm well chuffed at, we're now pulling nylon from waste car tires. So the embarrassing, guilty thing in the corner that we all have from driving too much, we're now pulling the polyamide out of the car tires for reuse. And this is being combined with exactly the same time that the whole world of what we call bioplastics. So that is when we're using a plant-based feedstock and it's giving us the same quality as we're extracting from a synthetic. And the most famous things are the, are, are the starch from uh, sugar plants and corn plants, which are creating things like polylactic acid, a PLA, which has the same effect. And the whole industry has become conditioned on nylon to work with nylon 6 and nylon 66. But I'm seeing bioplastics, which are the equivalent to 12 to 510, 59, 58. In fact, there's a whole portfolio of them. And if you intelligently choose your source, they will actually outperform bio, they'll actually outperform the synthetic versions. But it brings to mind, and Catherine, this is a very long answer, sorry. I was fortunate to chat with the guys at Patagonia on this very subject. And we both concur on a very interesting point. We have no problem creating bioplastic from the waste of the food industry, but we do have a very big issue about growing more textiles. We still have over a billion people on the planet living below the nutritional poverty line. And I respect Mike Berners-Lee, and I agree with him. We grow enough calories on this planet to feed everyone. It's just we don't distribute them. And people like me are still eating too much meat. Um, so whilst there is a shortage of calories being grown, we need to grow more food to feed the ever-increasing uh, population. So if you are going to go bioplastic, use food waste. Mm. I, I absolutely agree. And um, in a blog I did last year, um, by the time this goes out, uh, a blog in 2021, um, I was calling out some of the false solutions. And one of those was a bioplastic made from waste sugarcane. And whilst the sugarcane isn't the, the you know human edible part of the plant, I was arguing that we don't really want to be supporting the sugar industry by helping make it more profitable than it already is. 
Um, so there's all, all sorts of issues with with um, with bioplastics, but I agreed absolutely that it should only be from food waste, um, and really it should be from not not just food waste because if we're designing the circular system properly, we should be reducing edible food waste, human edible food waste, and even animal edible food waste. Um, you know what we used to pe- feed pigs on and so on. But there are parts of plants that aren't edible, and that's what we should be focusing on, in terms of you know using them for bioplastics and other, other um, uh, you know derivatives like uh, chemicals and so on. So thinking about thinking about the approaches that all those companies are taking, do you see any risks with those approaches? You know, in the past you've said that the return programs some of the brands have for their gear allow people to absolve their guilt when buying the latest new model. And I actually, I came across a term for that the other day. Um, it's called moral license. <laughs> it's it's kind of a thing. Um, this thing that where you've done something that's that's morally morally better than the default option, it gives you such a such a boost of of kind of um, you know almost uh, a mini halo. <laughs> <laughs> around you, around your subconscious for a while, that you'll then go and do something else that was a lot less sustainable or, or you know, morally good than you would have done in the first place. It's like you've kind of bought yourself some moral credits that you can now spend on, I don't know, a McDonald's or whatever, whatever horrible thing you want to do. I think you've actually summed it up very well, and um, I am not that concerned. But one thing I will say. You've asked about the issues and the risks. The big driving theme of apparel at the moment is all around the circular economy. And the problem I have with the circular economy is that there are too many brands rushing to create a monomaterial garment so it's suitable for recycling. And this is going to sound like a, a list. But there are a whole load of stages that you should be doing to your garments before you consider them for recycling. Because to me, the definition of the circular economy is to keep the original product going for as long as possible. And that should be where your focus is. And I wish we had more higher models available within this country. I'm also advocating people to resell on what they're not using regularly. Now, you know I live in Yorkshire, and I'm not that tough. I'm a southerner, but I have a down jacket, which apparently I can stand on top of Everest on. I can only wear it one day of the year because it's just too warm. I should be selling this garment on. And even if I'm not going to sell it, I should be reappropriating it to someone else, someone who needs to use it on a more regular basis than me. And then failing that, I can always relegate it and use it for when I'm properly cold for for other purposes. And all of those stages should come in before recycling. Now, we have a new stage, a new diversion tactic, which, which has gone on. And this diversion tactic is about biodegradable fibers, which is a wonderful subject. And I am a proponent of these new wonders. And I will talk about a lot of things, which they're really interesting technology, but we've not found the right application of them yet. And I describe it to my students as it's just like electric vehicles. We know the future and the long-term strategy of EVs are brilliant, but whilst we're still powering them using coal stations, we're going about it the wrong way. But until we iterate, until we dabble in, until we experiment, we will never progress it to get the right solution. So I accept on the way there are going to be problems. And one of those things on textiles at the moment is biodegradation. We have some additives which make your garments degrade or the fibers degrade 10 times faster. But if I tell you that cotton, that cotton isn't really affected by this, but when we're applying it to polyester and nylons, and you can measure their lifespan in hundreds of years, to get a solution in decades is actually a bit misleading. 
when you hear the expression biodegradable, you're expecting something to happen within a couple of years. And there are technologies which are decomposing synthetics within 24 months. But it also raises two other issues. When it degrades, are we going to have gases coming off like methane and carbon dioxide? So greenhouse gases. And secondly, will there still be toxicity in what is left? Because the current ISO or international standards for testing biodegradation is when it passes through a fine sieve. So it's almost designed for packaging. And if it just means making the problem smaller, it means it's harder con to contain. And if we have leaching chemicals coming out, we have a problem. So there are some tests which not only measure in months, but also test the toxicity of what is left. Um, so, yeah, I, I almost didn't give you a full answer, but and now I've just filled in far too many gaps. There's a lot of really good thinking in this area. And the thing I enjoy about the outdoor industry is that we all get together and we pull the resources because we know no what one brand is ever going to come up with a perfect solution. So we're all trying, we're all iterating, and we're all sharing the results in the hope that as an industry that charge it, that has slightly more, I would call them morals, we can develop something that can then go on to the general fashion industry, which would make me a lot prouder. Mm. And, I, and I really love the phrase you use, making the problem smaller. And it's it's really worth reiterating that, isn't it? That, um, you know, there are, there are lots of things that might be happening that appear to make the problem smaller, but all that does is allow... Um, you know the 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 chemicals and the toxins and um, the gases that are going to be emitted. It allows all those to escape even more easily and be much more difficult to contain and capture. You know, if the if the um, biodegradable element of synthetics means that the microfibers are even smaller than they are now, then the filters and the guppy bags and so on in a washing machine aren't going to collect them. So. It's kind of, you know, it's it's a false solution, isn't it? To, to go back to the um, the blog well, that I wrote about it with those um, um, sugar sugar bioplastics. Well, building on that example, I actually don't see the microfilament problem in the sea half as dangerous as the dodgy chemicals which are in the sea, which use them as carriers to enter our food chain. And I know the outdoor industry is responsible for PFCs going into the mix. But when we have things like pesticides and herbicides and PCBs, um, there are a whole load of dodgy chemicals which we need, to, we need to take responsibility for. Because if we look at the indications on things like the fertility rates of the Inuit Indians who have a very high fish diet, we know the chemicals are not reacting well in the human body and it's going to be how long until we reach tipping point mm. at the moment we we have to accept there's going to be a 0.6 level of pfcs in the environment we're never going to be able to clear up but we don't know how close that is to actually changing the genetic makeup and how it's going to interrupt with the body we we're advanced people but we don't know everything that we're playing with mm, absolutely absolutely there's there's all sorts of um unintended consequences of human innovation in the past so coming back to um the, the system and the circular economy you've talked in the past about needing to break the system in order to make you know a big step change in the industry and, and in the sustainability of the industry. So how would how would you break the system if you if you could kind of, um, you know, control the direction of it tomorrow? What what would you do? And, and would that include some kind of circular system? Um, it's something that goes back to the core of the circular system that we've already talked about. If I was to answer this in a phrase, 
I would say to make emotional durability the central focus. Now, clothing has four actually quite contrasting roles. It's got a utilitarian, a, a practical role, which is very strong, and it's the reason why we wear clothing. But we choose clothing based on its comfort. If we have two garments, it's the more comfortable one we will wear. Now, the third uh, stratification level is when it's identifying. You can identify, you can see who I am most days because I wear a check shirt like everyone else within the outdoor industry. But it's the fourth aspect which is overlooked by so many people. Clothing actually has a sense of fun and pride and it should never be overlooked. When we were all teenagers, we were basing it off the principle at, and with the pressure on the pricing of clothing that which has come down. We all enjoy dressing up. We all are more vain than we ever want to publicly admit. And we like what we wear. If you read something like Malcolm Gladwell's Blink, he puts so much into the nonverbal communication. So the tone of our voice, our mannerisms, our appearance and our clothing is the biggest single thing that affects our appearance so i would go back to answer the question to say how would i break the system i would actually reinforce the system and i would try and make emotional durability the central thing and i would remember that clothing has lots of roles but it also has a role based around enjoyment that people don't celebrate enough and what a brand, sorry to use the default answer, what a brand like Patagonia has always done so well is that it's made you proud of being associated with their brand. And at the same time you're hooked in, they recognize they will never save the planet by selling another jacket. But whilst they have your attention, they're going to communicate with you and press on their values that you should actually reconsider your heating policy or your transport policy. Because if savings can be made with a switch to solar or ground heat or to an e-bike or away from your second car, those are actions that will have an effect on saving the planet in a far more radical way than the whole of your wardrobe will actually encompass. So to answer your question, make people love their garments for longer and take pride in the garments that they have. Mm. Yeah, I like that. And and Patagonia are really good at that, aren't they? With their, on the worn wear site, the scars tell the story. So even if a garment's been mended or got got other kind of uh, scars it's because it's it's been having adventures and and um you know you you can uh, you can wear that garment with pride even though they weren't your adventures so charles although although worn wear does it very professionally i actually like the contrast done by the rab and the finisterre repair teams who actually put in contrast color patches because people now almost want to show off their battle scarred garments that they've had for decades and prince charles summed it up when he appeared on country file or oh, sometime in the last decade wearing a barber jacket that had something like 37 patches on you know and my attitude is that if it's good enough for his royal highness um it's good enough for the rest of us yeah, good one, good one. And Charles, if if you were going to talk to somebody um, new to your industry or mm -hmm. or another another business that's just thinking about embarking on the circular economy and thinking about what what they could do, what would your top tip be? Um, because I work as a university lecturer, my single biggest drive is education rather than regulation. I like to create the aspirational side that people will naturally move to. And when you're doing it on garments, there's still a lot of education that can be communicated. The values of the garment, even simple things like garment care skills. Um, there is so much room to make people love the ethics of your brand 
beyond what your individual product is. So my top tips for people coming into the industry is look at making sure your company is facing the right way, doing the right thing. Don't get distracted by the latest technology or the latest look. 90% of your turnover will not be at that fashionable end of the scale, but your repeat business, which is where your profits come from, come because you have the right ethics. And to me, if you take your role seriously and educate your customer, you will get that repeat business. Mm, that's that's a good point. And it kind of fits in with what you were saying earlier about um, Arcteryx, doesn't it? And their, what their employees were looking for in terms of, um, you know, being being proud of who they work for. So uh, I guess part of our identity in the future is going to be being proud of the clothes that we're wearing in terms of, you know, what, what it says about, um, you know, what are the ethics of the brand and what it says about you. So, Charles, it sounds like you know an awful lot of, of um, deep thinkers and people leading from the from the front in the outdoor industry. Who would you recommend as a future guest for the programme? It doesn't have to be somebody in the outdoor industry, obviously. Um, you've already had two of the people I've learnt lots from, Katie Beverly and Sophie Thomas. What I would like to answer this question with is a collective. I would like you to have all my graduates on your programme, because I admit I'm an average lecturer. Yes, I'm lucky I'm at the Royal College, but it's only because their questions have forced me to reassess where I am. And every new generation, they've asked harder questions. So I've had to revisit what I understand about better practice and more responsible practice. But because you can't interview all my graduates, I'm just going to say a, another one that I listen and learn from on a regular basis is Mark Shaler. Um, he's one of the Do Lecture team. He's, uh, yeah, he apparently he was the first su sustainable person within ASDA. So he's done both sides of the coin. And every conversation I have with him just stretches my vision more in the right direction. Fantastic. Well, I've followed Mark um, for quite a few years, um, including listening to some of his podcasts and so on. And um, yeah, really like the sound of what he what he does and what he thinks about. So that's great. I'm sure I'm sure that will be a fascinating conversation if he chooses to join. So, Charles, how can people find out more about you and get in touch? Um, really good question. And if you Google me, you will come up with the wrong answer because I am named after an apple that my great grandfather procured. It's a great British apple that's bland. It bruises easily and it's only best for baby food. Or the other Charles Ross of the world is a Canadian mime artist and he can do a summary of all nine episodes of Star Wars or all three books of Lord of the Rings within a one-hour show, purely mime. So the easiest way to find me is either on LinkedIn or I have the easiest email address in the world. Now, before the days of Gmail, we used to have email. So it's literally just charles at email.com. But if you are writing to me for the first time, just give me a line that you've heard me on this podcast so I can type a place you because I now have too many students all over the world. And even because I'm a middle-aged grumpy guy, I'm struggling to keep up with everybody's name. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you, Charles. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there'll be people who um, want to follow your work and um, learn more about the challenges of the performance sportswear industry. I don't want industry. people who, who are going to follow my work. I want people to join the conversation because it's a two-way thing. There'll be as much learning from your views and how much you understand than what you can learn from me. It's a two-way thing. Please come into it because the more contributors there are, the better. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for taking us through some of the um, the challenges and the emerging solutions and the optimistic um, spots in there, the, the bright spots in what's happening in the outdoor industry and, and with performance sportswear. 
and I'm going to follow you and, and your work. I might ask you a few difficult questions along the way as well, um, if I can kind of uh, think one step ahead. Um, but thank you very much, Charles, for taking the time to share all those learnings with us today and look forward to hearing what's next in 2022. And I'm looking forward. There are good news stories and we've not concentrated on them today because we've been looking at the folks. But there are some really good things happening. And I'm confident that actually apparel can reverse this reputation about being so polluting and there's potential to make it really good. And as a father for two teenage daughters, I know I'm never going to solve the anthropological demand of the fast fashion, but I hope we can actually make it climate benefit, it, a benefit to the climate. So we, I know there are possibilities of producing garments which have a carbon negative rating. And hopefully we're going to be on this journey to, together Catherine. Yeah I think there's lots of good stuff happening and um, you know whether it's uh, fashion's not really the right term is it fashion for good but apparel for good mm. looking at how you can create a positive, fashion for positive good footprint. It's a, a brilliant museum within Amsterdam if you're if you've ever got a couple of hours layover in Schiphol airport it's 10 minutes walk from the main railway station in Amsterdam fashion for good well worth going down there and just seeing what good practice there is. But this is Charles going off on yet another tangent. <laughs> well, I think we're both both good at that, Charles. Well, thank you very much. And um, yeah, maybe when there's been some um, some of those um, evolving developments are starting to go a bit more mainstream across performance sports, where it'd be great to have a catch up and, and hear your thoughts on what's happened and, uh, and, and what's next to do. So thanks, Charles. No worries. Honoured to take part. We started with an insight that probably applies to the whole of fashion and maybe to other sectors too. Charles sees the media building a perception that the biggest issue for outdoor clothing is microplastics. Instead, Charles feels the biggest problem really is overconsumption. Fueled by textiles being too cheap and brands doing their best to create emotional obsolescence. Last season's jacket makes me look like I'm not part of my group. Or last season's jacket makes me look like I don't know which colours are in. It was interesting to hear about all the research on fibres too, with companies working on polyamide and returning to nylon as a much more durable material, though both of these are still prone to microfiber release, just like polyester. The research into reuse of waste from other industries could be a positive step too, especially the ability to upcycle things like end-of-life car tyres. Charles talked about some of the developments on bioplastics and, like me, thinks there are risks of false solutions in the development of some of these new generation materials. And we're in good company with that view. Charles had been speaking to people at Patagonia who are clear that bioplastics must use genuine waste from the food industry rather than using crops grown specifically for textiles or other non-food bioplastics. We talked about another false solution, the focus on monomaterial products to make garment recycling much simpler. That's a worthwhile approach, but not if it means companies avoid circular strategies with much greater sustainability benefits. Things like reuse, repair and even remaking garments retain much more value and have a substantially lower footprint compared to recycling. Biodegradable fibres are being touted as a sustainable solution across the fashion industry, and Charles highlighted some of the issues, with the fibres containing toxins and problematic chemicals like PFCs, polyfluorocarbons and PCBs, polychlorinated biphenyls. These cause known problems for humans and other living systems. Biodegrading into the soil, into our compost or ending up in our wastewater after we wash the clothes means those toxins enter our food chain. The updates on rental and reuse sound hopeful, with Charles seeing what he called a massive explosion in activity from brands in Scandinavia. Charles also gave us a long list of brands with sustainability ambitions. 
together with a few that are offering rental repair services. Charles came back to the problem he highlighted at the start, overconsumption, and explained why clothing is such a complicated product to rethink. It has so many more functions than just keeping us warm and dry, and trying to break the cycle of fast fashion is a really complex puzzle. Brands like Vauda in Germany and Patagonia are doing great work on building in emotional durability for the clothes and, of course, for our attachment and loyalty to the brand. Making a positive impact for people and planet is important to employees as well as customers. Charles mentioned Arcturix's experience with employees leaving because they weren't happy with the brand's level of positive impact. There's a growing movement of people who are working out which brands they want to support, which brands are working harder to save our home planet, as Patagonia say, and are choosing to support those brands. So that's it for this episode of the Circular Economy podcast. Thank you to our guest this week, Charles Ross, and thank you for listening. You can find out more and follow Charles Ross on social media. As usual, you can check out all the links we mentioned in the show notes at circulareconomypodcast.com. If you want to find episodes on a particular circular economy strategy or for a market sector or specific countries, check out our interactive podcast index. There's a link on the podcast homepage at www.circulareconomypodcast.com and every episode includes an interview transcript. Don't forget that you can help make the circular economy happen too with the choices you make at work and in your everyday life. Buying pre-used, keeping what you have for longer, repairing it and making sure it has another life. And you can help spread the word. Talk about the circular economy and help other people find this podcast by leaving us a rating and a review on your podcast app. Email a screenshot of your review to podcast at rethinkglobal.info and we'll give you a shout out on the show. If you'd like to learn more about the circular economy, why not go back and listen to episode one and two or buy a copy of my award-winning book, A Circular Economy Handbook, How to Build a More Resilient, Competitive and Sustainable Business. The book takes you through the concepts and practicalities with lots of real examples from all around the world. The Circular Economy podcast is brought to you by Rethink Global, helping you succeed with circular. You can find information on our talks, workshops, coaching and advice and circular economy resources at www.rethinkglobal.info or connect with me, Catherine Wheatman, on LinkedIn. Thanks so much for listening to the end. And if you like what you're hearing, please hit subscribe and we'll see you next time.